I wonder which day you think would qualify as the darkest day in human history. There have been some pretty dark days in recent times, have there not? Think, for example, of December the 26th, 2004, when a devastating tsunami hit the countries bordering the Indian Ocean with the loss of 230,000 lives. Or a little further back, perhaps 9-11, September the 11th, 2001, when two airliners were deliberately flown into the Twin Towers in New York while the loss of life was less, 3,000 people, the nature of the event sent shockwaves around the world. Or some of you can remember even further back to a very dark day, Monday, August the 6th, 1945, when an atomic bomb was dropped in the city of Hiroshima in Japan, killing 140,000 people opening up a Pandora's box of dreadful possibilities that has hovered over human civilization ever since. And of course, if we knew history well, there have been very dark days in the more distant past, with even greater loss of life. But we tend, do we not, to focus on those events in living memory through which some of us may personally have lived. And most of us, do we not, have our own darkest day. Perhaps the loss of a loved one. Or betrayal by a loved one. But today I want to propose a different day as the darkest day in human history. It involved the death of only one man. But it qualifies because of who he was. And what he suffered. For he was the only truly innocent victim who has ever been killed. And as a result, the consequences of that darkest day affect every one of us here and every human being who has ever lived. The man concerned lived and died some 2,000 years ago. And his name, of course, was Jesus. We've been tracing the account of his life written by a man named Luke, preserved in the New Testament part of this book, the Bible, under the title, Good News of Great Joy for All People. But the reality is, the good news of great joy for all people is only possible because of the bad news of great sadness and sorrow for Jesus. As today we come to the beginning of that darkest day in human history, to the day of his death. And Luke records that as Jesus is arrested, he says to his assailants, something of great significance. He says to them, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. So, I simply want to look with you at these verses recorded in Luke's Gospel. It will help again to turn to your Bibles to Luke 22, verses 39 to 53. Page 1058 in the Pew Bibles. As Pitt mentions the children, these are very familiar stories to many of us. 
and in some ways preaching from them makes that all the more difficult. But it's also difficult to preach for them for a different reason, and that is because uh, these are the most poignant stories in the whole of human history. And as I said in my prayer, we stand as it were on holy ground as we come to our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we need to be aware of that, not to trivialize that. So to those who are switching off thinking of other things, just spend a few moments thinking about what our Savior suffered. And we'll do that this week as we come to communion on Thursday and then as we celebrate together, God willing, next Sunday, if the Lord Jesus should not return before then. Leading up to the crucifixion, we see the increasing isolation of Jesus. Not just physical isolation, but spiritual isolation. Uh, This is marked, first of all, in the first section, as he prays alone. And then as we move to the second section, his arrest, as he stands alone. Uh, Notice the contrast also that's seen in our verses. In the first section, we see the Lord Jesus Christ submitting to the Father's will, to God's will, verses 39 to 46. And then we see in what follows, everyone else, Judas, the disciples, and those come to arrest him, we see them all resisting God's will, verses 47 to 53. So let's look at each in turn. First of all, submitting to God's will. If you've been with us in this series, or you know the Gospel account, The final meal with his chosen disciples is over. And late in the evening, Jesus and the eleven, for Judas has already left, head out of Jerusalem, Luke says, if you look at the text, as usual, to the Mount of Olives until he says they reach the place. Luke doesn't tell us what the place is called. This is written for Gentiles who weren't interested in Jewish names particularly. But the place, of course, the place in the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is clear that the disciples, including Judas, who will know where to find them later, have been there before on other occasions, and for the same purpose, to pray. But while Jesus undoubtedly prayed there before with his disciples, now Jesus prays alone. After urging his disciples to be on their guard by praying, Jesus withdraws, literally the Greek says, Jesus pulls away from the others, a few yards, a stone's throw, and he kneels in prayer. Now, you can miss the significance of that. We're used to people kneeling in prayer. Maybe not in Charlotte Chapel, maybe we ought to do it more often, but uh, we know what it means to kneel in prayer. But the Jewish tradition, of course, was to stand in prayer, with eyes and hands raised to God in supplication. The raised hands these days are usually in songs, but actually, the Jewish tradition is you raise your hands for prayer. But the Lord Jesus Christ kneels. It's a sign of submission to the Father. In fact, the other gospel accounts tell us that he prostrates himself, eventually face down on the ground as he prays. It's impossible for the preacher or the hearer to really plumb. It's a good job that we can't plumb the depths of what Jesus went through as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. But notice two things. I want to just summarize two things that we learn from This prayer of Jesus. First of all, the agony of Jesus. It is a real battle. Look what he prays. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 42. Just as Adam had a choice, 
to eat or not to eat of the fruit God had forbidden in the Garden of, Geth- the Garden of Eden. So Jesus, the second Adam, has a choice to drink or not drink of the cup God has chosen for him in a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And although he has sought always to stay on track at every moment to be obedient to the Father, to follow the preordained plan that we've looked at in this series, everything is going according to plan. At every moment in his life, choices have to be made. He faced real choices in which it was perfectly possible for him, even though he's the Son of God, he is also the Son of Man, it is possible for him to deviate from the course, to be diverted from the path that the Father has ordained for him. So, you remember, right at the beginning of his public ministry, he had resisted the devil's temptation in the wilderness that would have diverted him off track. Now, three years later, at the end of his ministry, as his destiny and death approach, he faces the most difficult, the fiercest test of all. And what is that test? Well, notice the words he uses. He describes it as taking the cup the Father has given him. Notice the expression, taking the cup. What is the cup? Well, Jesus has just given a cup to his disciples to drink at the Last Supper. You remember, it was a cup of blessing. Verse 20, back in the chapter, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It is a cup of God's blessing, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. But it will only be a cup of blessing... If his blood is shed, if he drinks this cup, which is the cup of God's wrath. In the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, God's cup is constantly referred to as the cup of God's wrath. That is God's righteous anger on sinners and sin. You can quote various examples from the Psalms and the prophets. Let me just give you one that you should remember. We probably don't remember, but in our series in Jeremiah 25... This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, to Jeremiah. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Now this is the cup of God's wrath. It's righteous anger on sin and sinners. It is not a kind of petulant anger. It is part of God's unswerving justice against all that is wrong. All that is evil, all that is opposed to him. And as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it were symbolically, he looks into the cup and sees what is involved. He sees the cup of God's wrath against all the sins of the world, which he must drink, which he must bear, if he is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is why his natural inclination... His human nature is to shrink away from it. To refuse it in revulsion. The sinless one to become sin for us. The beloved son who has only known unbroken, perfect, delightful fellowship with the father from eternity. Throughout his earthly life to this point. He's now to experience God's wrath for us which we deserve. No wonder then that the text tells us he was in agony. Anguish, the word, Greek word is agonia. It's only placed a noun is found in the New Testament. Here in the garden, he fights a real battle. It's important for us to see that. It's not one of these Superman contests where, you know, it's no contest. It is a contest. It is a real agony. It is a real battle. 
Matthew records that he prayed the same prayer three times and kept coming backwards and forwards to the disciples. Luke foreshortens the account and simply summarizes the prayer. Richard Baxter, the 17th century Puritan theologian, pastor, comments, The agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he, our sacrifice, was to bear in greater pain than mere dying, which his servants often bear with peace. This is a death like no other. This is a crucifixion like no other. And yes, we should emphasize the physical suffering of our Lord, but it compares nothing to the spiritual agony that he suffered. It is a real battle. But notice linked with that something else it reveals, which we've already touched on. The humanity of Jesus. He is a real man. Luke alone records these words, verses 43 to 44. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now you'll see if you've got an NIV in front of you and you've got good eyesight, there's a little footnote at the bottom. See at the bottom of the page, it says, Some early manuscripts do not have verses 43 and 44. There are, of course, hundreds of extant manuscripts of the New Testament, far better attested than any other contemporary document from the ancient world. And most of them are in agreement, but occasionally you get differences. And some of the ancient manuscripts don't have these two verses. And so scholars ask, which is right? Did someone put them in later, or did someone take them out later? The evidence, I think, is quite strong to say these verses are original. And the most likely thing is that some scribes chose to withdraw these verses because they felt it reflected too much on the humanity of Jesus rather than his divinity. That he needed an angel to strengthen him. That he sweat this terrible sweat like drops of blood. But that is the whole point, I think, of the text. Here we have a description of a real man with real suffering. Jesus has already experienced angelic help in the past, after his temptation. Like his servants of old, like Elijah the prophet when he ran away from the Lord, you remember, an angel sustained him. And his description of his sweat is a very human description. Notice what it says. It doesn't say he sweat blood. People think Jesus sweat blood. Uh, it doesn't say that it said he sweat like blood. In other words, if you think of blood dripping to the ground, if you ever had a cut, you know, the blood just drip, drip, drips to the ground. That was what his sweat was like. He was in the, the most terrible agony of heart and mind. And this assures us, as the book of Hebrews does, that such a saviour is able to identify with our humanity in our temptations and sufferings. Here is help for us, help for human beings. Sometimes we think, nobody knows what I'm going through. People say it to me as a pastor, and sometimes I have to say, as a pastor, yes, you're absolutely right, I've never been through that kind of experience. Or at that level. But here is one who understands at the deepest level. For we do not have, says Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, let me just pause for a moment here and just say, whatever you are going through this morning, and who knows, behind the smile, the facade, and when I shake your hand at the door and say, how are you? And you say, fine, yes, yes, yes. And everybody says that because it's what you normally say. But behind the facade of those of you who are suffering and struggling with various issues in your life, temptations that seem too hard to bear, circumstances that seem to have no simple outcome or pleasant outcome, 
I simply say to you, yes, we need the fellowship of God's people. We need the pastoring of God's pastors. But ultimately, we have one who understands, who prays for us, who intercedes for us, who understands. That's why, as a Christian, you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not remote up there. Yes, he is. He's the man Christ Jesus. But he is the man Christ Jesus in heaven who understands what we're going through. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have that access. But Jesus suffered so that you might have the access so you can come to his throne. You say, I don't deserve it. Notice what it says. It's a throne of grace. If it were a throne of merit, we would not be barred from heaven. Because it's a throne of grace, we can find grace. God's unmerited favor. And you may say, look, I'm not a Christian, but I've made a mess of my life so far. And the reason I'm suffering is because of what I've done. And and I, I don't see any way out of this. Yes, Jesus suffered so that you might find grace. God's unmerited favor to help you in your need if you'll only call to him. And if you're a Christian this morning who is suffering, don't forget you have a Savior who suffered. And the Savior has been tempted, who's able to help you. And you can go to him and you cannot say to Jesus, you don't know what I'm going through. Because he does. So Jesus prays alone. His prayer reveals the agony of Jesus. A real battle. The humanity of Jesus. A real man. Thankfully for us, the real battle is won by the real man as we see the victory. Notice the victory is won in prayer. The American pastor R.C. Sproul, a little book on Luke's Gospel, comments, But for all that Jesus desired not to take the cup, there was something that he desired more fervently, and that was to do his Father's will. You see, in one sense, the victory was won a few hours later when Jesus died on the cross and he cried, It is finished. But in a real sense, the victory is won here in the garden in prayer long before, well, hours before. When he rises from prayer, the battle is won. His course is set. And all, all real battles are won or lost in prayer. You see, in fulfillment of Scripture, Isaiah 53 again, verse 10, it is the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and make his life a guilt offering. And all victories are won in prayer, sometimes agonizing in prayer, in which, in a much lesser sense, but nonetheless nonetheless real, we wrestle with God's will and submit to it. So let me speak to those of you who are struggling with God's will at this present time. And all of us have been there. There will always be battles that are won or lost in prayer. Issues that we face. Challenges that we face. Choices that we make. That are determined with God in prayer. When we either say, not my will but yours be done. Or we say, not your will but mine be done. You see, victories are won in prayer, but victories are also lost in prayerlessness. As we discover when Jesus returns to his disciples, he finds them asleep, exhausted from sorrow, Luke sympathetically tells us. And he wakens them and reminds them of what he already said to them before he began to pray. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, verse 46. You see, it is too late in this battle for the disciples. They've already lost the battle because they didn't pray while the Saviour prayed. They slept while he prayed. It's hard to be critical of them, isn't it? When so little we pray. 
And so we see them unprepared, along with everyone else, secondly, as we come to the second section, resisting God's will, verses 47 to 53. We have seen Jesus praise alone. Now we see that Jesus stands alone. It's very dramatic the way Luke describes it in his gospel here. There is the sudden appearance of a crowd. The original Greek is literally, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd. Maybe they were immersed in conversation, didn't notice the lanterns coming through the garden and the soldiers and the crowd approaching. And leaving the crowd, stepping out from them, is Judas, one of the twelve, we're told, who approaches Jesus to kiss him. Now the kiss, of course, was the customary sign of greeting and friendship. But not in this case for Jesus. The kiss means that Jesus is betrayed. And the iron and the treachery, of course, is not lost on Jesus who asks him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas is not just identifying Jesus to the arresting officers so they know who he is, but he is betraying the Son of Man, the term he has used Jesus used so often, many times in his teaching, to describe his deity. But Judas knows what he is doing. You see, like Jesus, Judas has already lost. The battle is all, the issue has already been decided by Judas a couple of hours before, probably. In the upper room. Judas has a last chance when Jesus points him out. A last chance to turn. And he rejects it. John's gospel is very telling. As soon as Judas had taken the bread that he shared with Jesus, he went out and John's gospel says, it's lovely in Greek, it's just two words, kainux, and it was night. He goes out into the night to do his dark deeds. And now it's still night, the darkness deepens. As Judas betrays the Son of Man, his Lord and Master with a kiss. Again, it's highlighted very clearly in the original. Jesus says, Judas, with a kiss? Do you betray the Son of Man? Daryl Bock in the NRV commentary on Luke writes, The kiss, a sign of affection, becomes a sign of defection. And he comments, I think, very applicably. That sin tries to cover its tracks is not at all unusual. One can think of stories of men who shower their wives with flowers and gifts while seeing another woman on the side. Or one can think of examples where people pilfer funds for the needy as they work for relief organisations. Such actions show how hard sin works to disguise itself. Behind a facade, it all looks good, it all looks nice, but it's all a facade. The reality is that we deny the Saviour, that we betray our Lord and Master. Watch out, Jesus said, for the deceitfulness of sin. But Judas, notice, is not the only disciple to resist God's will. While he may have done it deliberately and knowingly, the other disciples resist God mistakenly and unknowingly as they suggest armed resistance. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? You may remember at the end of the story in the, of the Last Supper, Jesus said to them, you need to prepare now for what lies ahead. And the disciples misunderstand when he says, take a sword, just meaning for normal defense. And they say, we've got two swords. And so with, without waiting for an answer, one of them, John's Gospel tells us it was Peter, takes action and uses the sword. Now we see Jesus, secondly, misunderstood. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his right ear. But this is not the way of Christ. Jesus answered, no more of this. Touched the man's ear and healed him. 
Now, we may not doubt the disciples' motives. They're doing what they think is right. But they have misunderstood what God is doing in this situation. Buck again comments, the disciples want to take matters into their own hands rather than letting God work out his will. You ask, well, it's a common easy mistake to make. How could they have avoided it? By praying instead of sleeping. Prayer protects you from taking hasty decisions. I know that in my own life. How often I say and do something impulsively and if I'd only stopped and thought and prayed first I might have done something differently. Human nature. Stop and pray. You know, we say to people, you know, if, you, if you're really mad and angry about something, count to ten. If you're a Christian, stop and pray first. Sometimes sleep on it. You might think differently the next day. Pray then sleep, and then take the decision. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, who lived in the 19th century, comments, Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. True. Yet Crusaders should have even less excuse, any Crusaders from the past, those shameful periods of Christian history. For before Pilate, Jesus said clearly, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. My kingdom is from another place. There is no excuse for Christians to take up arms. And to demonstrate this, Jesus heals the ear of the injured man. It's the last recorded healing miracle of Jesus. Uh, you might think those sent to arrest Jesus might have been grateful. Or might have held back with second thoughts about what they're about to do. But they too are oblivious to what God is doing. And they move to seize Jesus to grab him. The hand that arrests him. So we see the third action. It's significant. The hand Jesus arrested. Notice that everybody is in on the act. The religious leaders, the chief priests, the military authorities, the officers of the guard and the civil government, the elders. They'd all come for him. Verse 52. And Jesus challenges both their cowardice and their methods. He says, am I leading a rebellion? Am I a brigand, a highwayman? You've come to me with swords and clubs. Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You didn't lay a hand on me. But he expects and receives no answer from them. The Lord Jesus knows. Now is the moment. This is the appointed hour. Notice what he says. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Literally, the last phrase Translated is the authority of darkness. James Moffat paraphrases it. The dark power has its way. So to our conclusion. Late at night and into the morning as we'll see. This might continue as our series this evening. Then we continue on Monday, Thursday. Jesus is taken away for interrogation and trial. And a few days, a few hours later rather... Luke describes the end of the darkest day in human history. Which is literally dark at the wrong time, middle of the day. It was now about the sixth hour. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called with a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said that, he breathed his last. The reign of darkness was over. Demonstrated and dispelled by the dawn of Easter morning, when he rose from the grave, victor over sin and death, the curtain of the temple which separated sinners from a holy God, 
is torn in two. Now here's the great news. Jesus did this so we can be transferred. Here's the great transfer. The Apostle Paul writing to Christians in Colossae says this. He says, I pray for you, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this morning, each one of us here, from the youngest to the oldest, you live either under the dominion of darkness, or you're a saint in the kingdom of light. We're born in the kingdom of darkness. You need to be transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of light. And that's made possible because of what Jesus did. He experienced the darkness so you might experience the light. When you come to faith in Christ, when you turn from the darkness, you turn from your sin, you put your faith in Christ. Then you move to the kingdom of light. And that's the wonderful truth, the good news of the gospel. I simply conclude by asking you, are you still under the dominion of darkness, resisting God's will? Or have you been rescued and brought into God's kingdom of light and love? See, Jesus went through the darkest day in human history to make this possible. And that's why, strangely, we call that day not Bad Friday, but Good Friday. Praise God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you that you are sent our Saviour. Endured the darkness on that darkest day so that we might live in the light. That terrible day when he bore your righteous anger against sin and sinners. When he took our sin upon himself wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserve was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Thank you for that. For those of us who know that, give us fresh joy and thankfulness this morning. Praise and worship. For those who don't, Lord, have mercy. Draw us by your grace into your kingdom of light. Dispel the darkness. We ask it in Jesus' name for your sake.